We have lots to talk about today, Lisa. And I'm so excited to talk about Outspoken. I hear the awards uh, finalists have been notified today. So tell me what's up with that. Yes, we sent out emails to all the finalists. So they are aware that they've made it into the top five. So you can check out on our social media um, about who they are and watch for them posting themselves. So we're going to announce the winners Oscar style on November 15th, which is a Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific. And we are asking for folks to sign up in advance so that we can send you a link to where the event is happening. And you can do that on the Outspoken Summit website on the awards page. But we're pretty excited about this virtual ceremony. Um, we're going to hopefully um, surprise people once they find out that they're a winner. So no one knows of the people who are finalists. No one knows if they're going to be a winner and they'll find out on that evening. So um, please feel free to dress up Oscar style. <laughs> yeah, wear, wear something fancy. We won't be able to drop confetti on you, unfortunately, virtually. But should you be in a group of people and you're a finalist, you certainly could have confetti on hand um, should you be the winner. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to it. My my calendar is already marked. Uh, so I know where I will be. Uh, so I'm just waiting on my link and ready to go. But this sounds very exciting. I'm so excited for all the nominees, all the finalists, and we'll see who's doing all that good work out there in the triathlon community amongst our, our women. So looking forward to it. Great. Well, on to our episode today. So after the break, uh, Shauna and I are going to talk about post-election cleanup. So talk about confetti sweeping up the confetti we might be sweeping up a lot more than confetti after the, the election that's for sure so uh, join us after the break i'm dr shauna payne gold and i go by she her her pronouns and i'm dr lisa ingerfield and i go by she her hers welcome to unfazed a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance Okay, Shauna, so election day here in the United States. How are you yes. feeling? I woke up nervous. I am pretty sure that this is going to be an interesting day where I get very little done. Yes. <laughs> so uh, my TV will be on. Maybe the sound will be off, so I'll have it muted. But I'm uh, trying to keep up with what's going on. You know, I, I realize that we've had uh, some landmark numbers when it comes to just the numbers of folks that have voted early even. So I'm just really excited to watch all the election results come in. But I am a little nervous. And um, let me just say, um, usually I stay up to see the election results, but I've also had the privilege of relatively knowing that we would have an actual result on election night, mm. but I don't think that will be the case this year. Yeah, because it's all different, right? Because of such a huge number of folks who are going to be voting by mail and the length of time that that's going to take to count those ballots. And then I think in some states, there's also a window after the election day where they're going to accept ballots as long as they're postmarked by election day. So we might not know, what is it, uh, Tuesday right now. So we might not know until sometime next week or perhaps longer than that. Absolutely. It's going to take a while. And, you know, I, I remember elections where they were still looking at hanging chads with the, uh, oh my, <laughs> the magnifying glass, trying to figure out exactly what was going on. So I imagine that type of intensity times 10, maybe as we're all waiting and anticipating. Um, but yeah, I have to say I'm a little nervous. Um, usually I'm just excited, but now I'm excited and nervous and 
actually relatively fearful regardless of the outcome, frankly, because I don't know how the rest of the country will respond. Mm. And so, you know, I really think it leads us to asking some very serious questions about what does the post-election cleanup look like, if you will? You know, I, I mm -hmm. think um, with or without a pandemic, I think there's some things that we're going to have to work on uh, as individuals, as communities, as a country. There's some things I, I almost feel like we need a to-do list of things that we just need to begin work on immediately. Um, and, you know, usually what happens, and Lisa, you are the expert in this area when it comes to some of the political engagement and even some of the messaging, um, you know, we usually have that patent speech, uh, the acceptance speech, or that post-election speech that talks about how we now need to unify and come together as a people, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we need to take that to a different level. I think it's a different level of unity that's needed, but it's just a different level of attention that's needed to, um, I think we've used the word healing in past years after elections. I think that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, the roots are very deep to the amount of healing that needs to happen in the country. But I'm, I'm not sure what that looks like. I'm not either. And I know that there have been a number of um, websites or kind of memes or uh, interactive images where that have showed like over the last 25, 30 years, the nature of polarization in the United States and how, as a whole, the population has become more and more entrenched in their position, which has driven people further and further apart. And so you see that um, with the elected officials and their unwillingness to compromise. And you also see that in the general population. So 2020 is definitely a different kind of year. Uh, I mean, obviously 2016 was pretty bad too, but incrementally over time, it's just gotten worse and worse. So what does healing look like now as compared to what it looked like 30 years ago? I'm not sure everyone really has an answer to that because you're right. Platitudes about coming together and unity and one America um, really do gloss over some of these fundamental fractures in our culture that are long and deep. Um, and until they're really addressed head on, not much is going to change, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, I think let's go in a little bit of a different direction. You know how I love analogies, but um, I think this one is, a, is appropriate. Yeah, we are talking about healing the country, but also, too, I think it's inevitable that we're going to walk away with some deep scars that will always be there. It's just a matter of how much they heal. And so I don't think anyone is going to forget uh, participating in this election. I don't think anyone is going to forget uh, the debates, for example. I, I don't think anyone's going to forget uh, some of the language that's been used. Um, and frankly, just even on personal levels, I think a lot of people aren't going to forget um, how they either treated family, friends, loved ones, whoever's closest to them, and also how they were treated by people. And so it might be 20, 30 years from now, and they will remember how that family member or friend or loved one said whatever um, during this election cycle. And so I think it's just, you know, in depth, uh, the the healing and just the attention we need to give to the work that needs to happen post-election. And so I, I almost feel like we truly do need this to-do list of these are things that we need to give attention to, regardless of the, the outcome. These are things that we need to do um, as Americans as, and I might, I might even say global citizens, I might not even uh, just keep it to Americans, but as human beings, these are things that we need to do in response to this election um, and also to maintain beyond this election. So we've talked about normal and new normal. 
uh, we might need to consider what are we going to include in the new normal. And I think we might need to start with some relationships there. You know, how are we going to connect, reconnect or not connect with people moving forward as a result of all this? I think that's such a great point, the relationship piece. And you brought up friends and family and loved ones, right? And I think it's also really salient for the endurance sport community because I, one of the things that has manifested over the last year is how those um, values and experiences really also exist in the context of triathlon and more broadly endurance sport, right? This, this belief that for some people, um, you can just separate um, your experience in the world from your experience in triathlon and endurance sport. And for other people, you cannot. And so that has created some tumultuous conversations and experiences in online groups, in triathlon clubs, in um, the sports media. And so, you know, it's, there's multi layers here about those relationships, right? So if you're in a triathlon club and um, you determine that, you know, a significant number of the, the leadership group is, um, or has a different perspective than you, let's say, whatever that might be, you know, you need to really think about where's your place? Like, do you, do you stay in there because there's an opportunity for growth um, of everyone or do you leave because the energy that you're putting in is just too much? And um, how do you balance that? I think there are some real questions for athletes and leaders in the endurance sports industry. There's just not a way to separate this election and the strong feelings around it from your athletic life. Yeah, I agree. Well, and it's something that kind of lingers in the back of the mind too. So, you know, if I'm, I identify as an African-American female. So if someone in my tri club said something very offensive or something that just dehumanized either me or the social groups that I belong to, I'm going to be a little more apprehensive if we're out for a ride. Is this person really going to be looking out for me or not? Is because really it's more than just athleticism. So, you know, is this person going to look out for me or not? If something happens to me, are they going to come by? Um, you know, if are they even going to ask about me if I'm late, you know, wrapping up or if something happens, I get a flat or whatever it might be. Will those folks look out for me based on their political opinions? Because I think uh, oftentimes we forget that there is congruence. You know, I can't separate what you've said as part of your uh, political affiliations or even just your value sets as a human being. I can't separate those value sets from the sport that we both participate in. You bring them with you just like I bring mine with me. And so they all show up when we show up for that swim or show up for that ride. And so, you know, all of that comes along with us. And so I think it deeply affects relationships because um, the, the individual who may have said something hurtful or offensive may or may not know. And especially if they don't know, the other person is walking around wounded and it kind of exacerbates the wound when you have to explain why you're hurting when you have to go back into mm -hmm. that explanation, that that's challenging, very challenging. Yeah, it really is. And I, I think you raise an important point, Shauna, that um, ob observing how individuals in your sporting community have responded to uh, the upheavals that have occurred over the summer because of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Jacob Blake, um, and, mm -hmm. and just you know ongoing violence against communities of color tells you something about whether or not those individuals are going to have your back when you're out riding, when you're out running, right. just as you said. And I think that I really want to underscore that point because that's right. Um, it's not 
separate, right? We are talking mm-hmm. about um, a risk of violence, yeah. um, verbal yeah. violence, physical violence, however you want to frame yeah. that. And so you need to know in your sporting community, in your club, that people have your back. And I think that someone's expression of um, dislike for the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, tells you a lot about whether that person's going to be there for you. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that's the key is that, you know, if, great example, if I'm showing up to a swim, and usually what I do is I absolutely do a little bit of recon. Who's going to be there that I know? Who is going to be there um, other than me that I know and trust? In fact, who's going to be there that I know and trust? And that's going to be looking out for me. They're actually going to pay attention if I don't show back up to shore in 30 minutes, for example, they're going to pay attention. Um, And I'm not saying that we have to be connected by the hip, but do I trust that my humanity and my presence is noticed or not and valued or not? That shows up in all three sports. I I would suggest all endurance sports that shows up for people who um, have been chronically oppressed in their entire lives. It shows up there. So I, I just want to get rid of the thought that, endurance sport is immune to what's going on in the world because it's it's certainly not right. it's yeah. malleable it's uh <laughs> the endurance sports is somewhat i would suggest a sieve where yeah things still can get in there but they're still there and so i i've just want to get us out of that delusion that oh well endurance sport is the greatest we do it because we love it yeah we do and some crap really creeps in every once in a while and we're not immune mm-hmm. to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's creeped up, if it's crept up for you and your experiences as a woman, but I, I just feel that it can happen. It has happened. I've witnessed it happen. I've been the the target of it happening. So mm-hmm. um, we're, we're not immune at all. Yeah, it has not to the same extent. I mean, I've definitely found um, my, if I've been writing, writing is a particularly salient example, I think for both of us probably, but um, you know, and it's been a predominantly male group that that hasn't felt comfortable. There has been um, pressure around um, keeping up with the pack. There's just less of a interest in understanding people's different skill less levels and just less, um, kind of polite way of interacting. And I'm, I am speaking in generalizations here. Obviously, this is not every male cyclist, but certainly as a woman, I have felt that um, outsider-ness um, in predominantly male spaces in triathlon, um, e- even down to silly things like, well, it's not silly, actually, it's a safety issue. You know, I'm, I'm riding and large groups of male cyclists, you know, fly by and they don't say on your left right? Like anecdotally, um, I pay attention to that. And almost always people who I read as women will say on your left and people who I read as male do not say it. There are exceptions, but I've been kind of paying attention to this for a couple of years now and it falls into those buckets. Um, Mm -hmm. So just this kind of disregard for um, the experience of others, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, and disre- disregard for this experience of others, and also that might cycle back into some of our previous conversations about awareness of taking up space. You know, so is it is it the foregone conclusion that as a male triathlete that I should always be passing folks, so you people should be used to this? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. like, like yeah. you know, it's it's the taking up space. Whereas a woman may be saying, you know, 
I'm aware of the rules. I'm playing by the rules and happy to play by the rules. And I also care about the safety of everybody around me. So I take up space differently than a man possibly would, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I've been in those situations where um, instead of an on your left, it's a screaming, get out of the middle of the way type thing is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't have eyes in the back of my head last I checked. So with that being said, you know, and not to say that I'm the perfect cyclist that definitely far from it, but I do think that there's uh, communication that needs to happen. And, um, you know, how do those relationships look like? Uh, how do they look in the future? Um, given that we've been noticing th- these things for a while now, we have an opportunity for folks to wake up. Are they really paying attention to their relationships? Mm, not so much. I, I, I'm not so sure that people mm-hmm. are being aware or being thoughtful about how they show up and how much space they may or may not take up. Yeah, I do think that that kind of like echoes back to some of the prior conversations that we've had because the other piece, right, is um, post-election. So once we know the outcome of the U.S. election, how is that going to affect who is whose voices are heard, um, who's taking up space? Like, will the dynamic shift significantly from pre-election? I'm not really sure that it will. Um, I think that we can lull ourselves into a false sense of security about, well, if the Democrats win, um, everything is going to transform and we're suddenly going to be in this idyllic um, country where, you know, the American dream is realized for everyone. And I just think that is simply not the case. And so this rules of engagement that you kind of alluded to, um, about how we're engaging with each other, I think will be an interesting dynamic as we rethink some of those relationships in the aftermath of this election, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, what, what is, what is the central value that people, um, move forward with in their endurance sport community, right? Has there been enough of a shift over 2020 to change how people think about what it means to engage and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. What's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And, you know, I, I have kind of gone through this process of, especially when we're talking about rules of engagement, you know, making conscious choices of how you want to engage with someone or if you want to engage with someone, especially when they are other athletes in the endurance sport community. So, you know, there are some folks where I've found that I can fully engage with them with all that I bring and all that they bring, I can fully engage with them. There are others where I may only be able to engage about certain topics where, look, we just stick into triathlon. We just stick into swim, bike, run, fuel. That's it. We're not talking about anything else. We're not even talking about each other's kids. Nothing. We're not talking about family. None of it. Then there's other folks where I literally, if I have the option, would not even allow myself to be in their presence based on either behaviors or statements they've made that have made it clear to me that identities that I belong to or identities that other people I care about belong to are not valuable to them at all. And so it's up to me, and I know this sounds like being a control freak here, but it's up to me to determine how I'm going to engage with the other person because they're clearly not going to do it. They're, they're, they're going to be themselves. They're mm-hmm. going to be all of them as, as they should be authentic. I'm, I'm not asking for an Oscar winner to show up by any stretch, but what I am saying is that in order to um, continue to, to val- validate myself, to continue to validate other oppressed people um, outside of my social identity groups, I have to make conscientious decisions 
if or how much I want to engage with you. And so if that means that, yeah, we were in our tri club together, but now I have to either unfriend you or I'm very aware of how I move around you, all of those things, then I'm okay with taking on that responsibility because I want to be conscious of who I'm around and what I'm taking in. And so I just feel like it's it's almost <laughs> going back to cast. It's almost like a ranking system here. Like I, I am determining how much or how little access you have mm-hmm. to me based on how I want to protect. I don't know if that's the right word, protect, or at least um, uh, be aware of my own mental health and my own mm-hmm. emotional safety around mm-hmm. you and my own psychological safety around you. I have to make that choice for me. Um, yeah. And I wonder how much other folks are doing that. Yeah. And I, I think that um, it's not about control, right? I think that you got to the got to it at the end there where you said is is protect the right word. Because to me, it sounds like a protective measure that you're taking, a survival strategy, because you live in, you know, a racist and sexist society that is constantly pounding at your door, right? It's not like um you have to deal with that, you know, five minutes in a week. It's like an ongoing mm-hmm. um experience of oppression that of course wears you down right in the same way that sexism wears me down to to a different degree as your experience and so there's that's kind of almost like this our our country or our culture has trained you right about how do you best navigate that and part of that is creating Mm -hmm. these parameters around who you let in and who you don't let in um and the other piece that i would say for for white people for men for able-bodied people, for heterosexual people, you know, if someone who has an oppressed identity, social identity, and they actually take the time to explain something to you, I would say that that is an act of kindness and an investment in your relationship because, you know, walking away would be pretty easy to do. Um, And so if someone takes the time to say, hey, you know, this is how that landed on me, or hey, let me explain something to you, or did you know that this has been my experience? If a person expresses that kind of emotional labor to you, then um, you need to be very, very grateful because that means that they see something in you. In my opinion, that means that they see something in you and they're willing to invest the time and the stress that that takes. Um, So you need to be gracious and you need to accept and hear and receive um, and think about um, how you can do something differently in the future. And I don't know if you agree or disagree with me there, Shauna, but I certainly don't invest my time talking about sexism um, or indeed racism from my position as a, as a white person with people if I don't think um, that there's room, right? That like if it's going to be too stressful, then I will make the choice not to engage because I had do not have investment in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminds me of a it was a quote I've seen on social media quite a few times that basically says, I'm not willing to explain myself to people who have committed to not understanding me. Um, and, and, and there are people, and I, I think about it all the time, and that's not to let people off the hook by any stretch. It's truly about managing how much energy I want to put into someone. But um, it is, I have to remind myself, Shauna, you are a very strong-willed person, and you're very committed to the things that you care about. Someone else is also extremely committed to the opposite view of what you believe, just as committed as you are. So just as I feel relatively immovable on many points of my value sets, those individuals feel just as deeply unmovable. So what makes you think you're going to move that mountain? 
no. <laughs> and and I, I had this conversation, um, Lisa, you know, you and I are, have been doing a good bit of consulting work and mm-hmm. working with organizations and so forth. And one of the most interesting corners I had to turn with a particular organization was that they had to literally let go of being so deeply committed to what I call proselytization. Do not commit to trying to change someone's mind. And part of my rationale behind that, I've completely agree with what you said earlier. Part of my rationale behind that is uh, the economics of time, that the amount of Mm. time that you're spending trying to change someone's mind, you could be working with the people who are already committed and already supportive to the cause. So if you're spending you know, uh, an exorbitant amount of time on it. It's kind of sounds like the 80, 20 rule. You're spending 80% of your time on 20% of the people that aren't going to change. Why not spend 80% of your time on the 80% of people who are ready and open and sponges Mm. um, to this, uh, this type of work. So where are you spending your time? Because there are people out there that are equally committed to disagreeing with you (laughs) as you are to your stances. So why are you spending your time in that way? In fact, and and that's not to say that every human being is a lost cause. I'm not saying that at all. I believe there are people uh, that will change over time. I've seen people that were 80, 90 years old on their deathbed saying that I was completely wrong and what I did. So I don't want to go fully extreme there. But what I am saying is that you have to be aware of how much energy you want to use. Um, I've even been in situations where I had to facilitate very difficult conversations. And I simply would not allow those couple of folks that dissent to rob everybody else of the experience that we had created for them. I just was not willing to allow that to happen. And I think we need to consider how we use our, our energy in that way. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point. And it reminds me of Jamie Washington, who's a social justice educator who said something to the effect of, um, you know, we, um, the choir is with us essentially. Right. Um, so <laughs> right. we need to, we don't, we need to stop preaching to the choir. We need to actually mobilize the choir. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, you know, I could go into an organization and I could provide a, a training on privilege and everyone in the room could be nodding. Right. Cause they could be all with me. They all understand it. So, but what is, what does that actually do? Um, kind of in, in a material way to change the status quo if it's just kind of an echo chamber of um, us all nodding that privilege is a problem and we need to be reflective versus me um, coming in and creating an opportunity for folks to develop solutions and essentially mobilizing that that energy that's already there um, and not giving time to the one or the two people, like you say, who are detractors, right? I think that's such a great point, Shauna, that you made there around the 80-20 Right. And not spending 80% yeah. of your time on the 20%. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just don't want to do that. Well, and <laughs> I don't want to do it, period. But I, I then once again think, you know, that preaching to the choir thing, you could take that in a couple of different ways, right? Where you're putting unnecessary energy into people who already support the cause. And you could also say with that, you are preaching to a choir that's already committed to another belief and which one are you going to invest in? And Mm. so, you know, I I just really want to be careful about that because I see it too much. I see it too much. Like I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, I don't know about you, Lisa, but um, I've been as usual inundated with texts, emails, et cetera, go vote, don't register to vote. And I'm thinking to myself already registered, already voted. You don't have to send in any more text. I've already donated to cause all of that. You don't have to send anything back to me again, preaching to the choir. And so, you know, 
what I don't want to do is continue to waste both people's time, right? So I don't want to waste the time of the people that are not down for the cause of diversity, equity, and inclusion by trying to convince them of something that they're entrenched in. Um, I also don't want to waste the time of the people who are committed but want to go to the next level with me. If, if I'm still teaching mm. kindergarten principles to graduate students, then I'm also still wasting time, mm. wasting my time is, and theirs. So, you know, I, I think that's an important thing to consider. How are we spending our time here engaging mm -hmm. with folks? Uh, it's very yeah. important. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make a connection here that I'm going to acknowledge the audience might not fly because I'm going to like do it. I'm going to like make the connection as I'm talking because <laughs> my brain it. is processing. Right. <clears throat> and I'm thinking about the electoral college and um, I've been um, doing some additional education around how problematic the electoral college is in terms mm. of it not really um, facilitating representative democracy. Right. Because not everyone's vote counts equally in the electoral mm. college. And there are some great podcasts out there that explain the history of the electoral college, which is probably beyond the scope of our discussion here. But mm. what the electoral college has done has created a situation in the United States where there are a handful of states, Florida being one of them, um, that have a significant number of electoral college votes. And so candidates for presidency tend to focus all of their time on those few states um, okay. that could swing in their direction and give them the presidency. And in that, even further than that, they spend their time on a particular demographic within that state that could mm -hmm. tip the vote one way or the other, right? So um, these candidates uh, are essentially marketing themselves and creating a platform that is speaking to a very small percentage of the U.S. population. And that's where 80% of their energy is going. And mm. then you have, you know, millions and millions of other voters in the electorate who are not being spoken to at all. And some of those are the choir for your particular position, right? And some of them are not. But when we spend all of our energy on a small particular um, group of people because the ultimately the system itself is broken. Right, um, right. We right. are missing an enormous opportunity for kind of transformational level change, I think. And mm -hmm. that, you know, that's obviously, I'm talking on the 300 million scale, right? Because we're talking about the United States and that's obviously not your average tri-club or cycling club. <laughs> right, but right, um, right. I just, so I don't mm. know if that connection made sense to anyone listening or to you, Shauna, but it just made me think of that about how um, mm -hmm. we focus more and more on this, a smaller and smaller group of people to try and persuade them to our side of things. And who are we missing when we do that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and that, that's my point. I mean, even, and maybe I'm looking at all of this definitely through an educator lens is that there are going to be, well, let me step back. I do not want to have a savior complex. That's the first thing. I'm not going to be able to help everyone to understand everything, regardless of agreement, just even understanding. Um, so can't have a savior complex on a lot of things. And then the other piece is, you know, do I really want to spend that amount of time on people that are so committed and entrenched in ways that actually further push them away, doesn't even incrementally move them into a new space, and again, robbing the people that want to mm. go to another level. Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to rob folks of going to another level because, you know, I, I think I often think of like, you know, in the elementary school settings here in the United States where now we've moved away from this. But I remember it when I was a child where that poor teacher in that classroom 
spent the lion's share of their time working with one or two children that were really struggling until we really understood special education, for example, and other functions in a classroom. That poor teacher spent the lion's share of their time on one or two students that needed specialized help. So she still wasn't even getting to the point. Um, he wasn't still getting to the point. And the rest of the students in that classroom were bored to death. And, you know, they ended up not getting great grades either because they weren't being stimulated in some way or pushed to another level. And, you know, I think that may be something to consider, too, is mm. what about all these newly awakened folks in our country? Um, whether it's due to the pandemic, whether it's due to the election, how are we continuing to rob those folks who want to mm -hmm. go to a new level in their allyship, et cetera, et cetera, because we're focused on a couple of people that may never move an inch. Mm -hmm. And, and how does, how does that affect the entire system? Um, so, you know, I think, you know, going down our little to-do list here, you know, relationships, the rules of engagement, um, the energy that we choose to expend or not expend. I think those are extremely, you know, big pieces to the puzzle too. Um, but I do love your point around, you know, I know you were building the plane as you flew there, as you were explaining the connection with us, which I love. Um, but, you know, going back to that electoral college thing, I'll tell you a funny story, Lisa. My mom sent me a screenshot of a paper that I wrote in fifth grade saying that I didn't agree with the electoral college because it wasn't appropriate or representative of everybody in the country. Amazing. In fifth grade, right? And so, you know, I think part of me wants to go back to that because I need a refresher on some points of of civics. But that's one point that I've never forgotten that, you know, this is not a, a one person, one vote country here. It's it's just not the case. Um, but, you know, I've shared with you before, Lisa, that my, my frustration, it sounds like it's not, uh, like it's competing against one another. Yes, I am for as many voters as possible. I would love to see 100% voting. However, I'm also keenly aware of uneducated voters. And what does that mean as far as what they know and what they don't know when they go to the ballot box? You know, I, maybe we all need a, a Civics 101 refresher on how all of this works, because mm -hmm. that really does frame and shape how people vote, how people respond, how people respond to candidates. Um, you know, it always goes back to my analogy of, you know, you see some flames and someone says, oh, that's just the fire pit. We're just doing s'mores when actually the whole house is on fire. You need to know the context. You need to know the history. You need to mm -hmm. hold, know the whole picture of, of civics in this country in order to appropriately make your decisions, whatever yeah. direction you go in. Yeah. I, I, on the whole agree with that. And I, I struggle a little bit with um, where voting in an election such as this sits with you on your kind of priority list is often dependent upon your context, right? So if you're working yeah. three jobs, um, you're trying to put food on the table and I'm not trying to create like hyperbole there because a significant number of people in the United States live under the poverty line, right? And this is their day-to-day -day reality. Is it unrealistic of us to request that they be educated um, around uh, policy and what candidates are saying and kind of the inner workings of the government and representative democracy, Um you know, so mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm, I'm a bit torn there. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that a lot of people don't vote, not because they are lazy, but because they don't see that any candidate will create substantial mm -hmm. change that will help them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
well, here's here's another point that I'm I'm hearing you on what you're saying. Even as far as I don't care if you have studied each and every candidate or not, for example, there are some more fundamental basic things that people don't know even about the election process. So, for example, if the only two candidates you're educated about happen to be the ones running for president and vice president and you don't know anything about your state, your any of that, you don't know anything else about the ballot and you don't have the time to research it because you have those three dots three jobs or you're in school full time or whatever the case may be, you're a caretaker. Shoot, how about a pandemic? You're dealing with a pandemic right now and the changes Mm -hmm. to your life at the moment. You don't have time to be a government, an American government scholar right now. You just don't have time for it. Even just being aware that you can go vote for the people that you're knowledgeable about and you don't have to vote for anything else on that ballot. Mm. Like some people didn't even know that they felt like, oh, well, if I don't check something and if I don't fill in every single box for every single, you know, referendum, et cetera, then Mm -hmm. my ballot won't count. Some people didn't even know that. And so some of those basics, which that's the reason why I love. Yeah. All of the get out the vote campaigns and, you know, some other uh, campaigns about, you know, what's your plan, your voting plan. That's what I loved about a lot of those, because we've seen some folks and you, I know you've seen it, Lisa, where celebrities have talked about their first time registering to vote, their first time actually voting. Oh, well, I didn't know X, Y and Z. Some people are watching and they're like, oh, my goodness, these are the reasons why I never voted was because I thought I had to go down the ballot. and I thought I had to know what I was talking about. And really, you had to know about and be mm-hmm. firm in the vote you do cast. Mm. And, and I think even some of those nuances, it, it's messy. I, I get your point that it is messy. Um, but yeah, some of those nuances people didn't know about either, which I think is important. I think that's really important, actually. And I've always wondered here in the UK, at least when I was voting there, um, you could abstain, right? So you would have like mm-hmm. Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, and then you would have whoever else, right? And then you would have abstain as an option. So you could actually, like, if you either didn't know enough or you didn't like either candidate or whatever, you could, you know, circle or check, I forget what it was, um, the abstention box. And I always thought it was interesting that that doesn't seem to exist here because for all those people who um, choose not to vote in for certain uh, races because they don't have a much, as much information as they would like, so they just don't, mm-hmm. or people who mm-hmm. are kind of not voting in protest, like, that gets lost, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. so, you, so you don't, So the people who are voting in protest in particular, it just gets kind of like washed away with all the people that don't vote because of voter apathy versus like Mm. understanding, well, I went down my ballot and I just abstained from everything because I either didn't have enough information or I'm not happy with any of the choices. And then you have a number, right? You have a number that you can Mm -hmm. put next to the abstention. And I think that that's kind of important because it's a vote, Mm -hmm. but it's a different kind of vote. And I don't know the history of why that's not on the ballot here. That's a good question. We might have to, that might be our homework for the next mm. podcast is to come back with some answers to that question, because I think that's pretty profound that, you know, I would love to see the percentages of folks that would actually abstain in the United States because they would have various reasons for doing so. And I would love to know those reasons, mm-hmm. uh, because then that really would affect the next election cycles of, you know, what boards of elections should really be considering moving right. forward. So, right. you know, we had, you know, let's say we had 300,000 Americans in this country abstain and we find out the reasons why. So then that could either affect voter turnout in the future or affect uh, voter education, whatever it might be. I think that, you know, see, this is where Lisa and I get into the um, data analysis 
asking the questions that people don't want to answer. <laughs> we're, we're the asterisk on that report that nobody wants to answer the right. true question, right? We're, right? we're always that. So I think that's a very important por- point that you're bringing up. And, you know, and frankly, here's the thing. I would love to know out of those folks who could possibly abstain in this country, of course, what the racial and other demographic mm-hmm. breakdowns are mm-hmm. of those folks, because that goes back to, yep. you know, how do we want to continue to keep this sustained racial and social justice movement going beyond this election, regardless of the outcome. There, there have to be some new strategies put in place to make sure that this um, doesn't become what we used to call the, the flavor of the month. You know, is it, it isn't mm-hmm. just, oh, let's, you know, just talk about George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery for a little bit, and then let's uh, forget their hashtags and move on to the next thing. How do we sustain that momentum beyond the election, regardless of the outcome? Because Either way we go, some folks are still going to be outraged. And frankly, I don't care who wins. I'm still pissed off about Breonna Taylor and I'm still pissed off. (laughs) I'm I'm ticked off about all of it. Um, And so there still has to be that sustained energy. Mm-hmm. around that. And, you know, I, I will continue to do what I do. But, you know, I'm wondering what we can continue to do as a country moving all of that forward um, in ways that are really tangible in real people's lives, but also in endurance sports. How do we continue to, yeah. you know, is it that, oh, well, we continue to, you know, sell the the social justice movement, you know, try kits that people buy and, you know, 80% of the proceeds go to XYZ. What, what are we doing here? Uh, I think we need mm-hmm. a, a coordinated, somewhat coordinated response to keep that moving along and um, make it part of the fabric of the sport. Um, it's something to consider. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, thinking about elections and kind of creating a social justice lens as a fabric of the sport, you know, local tri clubs, uh, federations, um, Mm -hmm. organizations, nonprofits that have boards of directors, you know, they often request votes. Um, Mm. and so how much are you engaging in the, the practice of voting in those local organizations? You know, I'm thinking of USA triathlon, USA cycling, USA swimming, right? Mm -hmm. They have a board of directors because they're nonprofits and those are elected positions. And if you pay your membership fees to any of those organizations, then you get a vote. Like, are you, are you just, are you researching the individuals who are up? Because those individuals are going to shape policy that's coming out of those organizations. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And Mm -hmm. so when we think about um, sustaining um, this focus on racial justice, social justice more broadly, Mm-hmm. There's apps that's absolutely relevant, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, you're you're reminding me of something too, you know, even as we're, you know, looking at those folks that are making decisions and voting on them as well. One of the things that I love that's kind of happening now, and I'm imagining it'll continue to happen, especially um once again, uh shout out to uh the outspoken awards, how that's con- gonna continue to galvanize the voices or at least highlight the voices of um, folks that are minorities in the sport that they've been there all along, but no one knew and and mm-hmm. no one highlighted their work. So, you know, I, the let me just be clear on, you know, how many of how many folks that are underrepresented in the sport that are constantly highlighted. And, and in fact, I adore. However, Sika can't be everywhere all the time. I can pick on her because she's my friend. I can do that. Um, but Sika can't be everywhere all the time. She's busy training and, and getting to the promised land here. Um, but with that, I love that, you know, even as far as me, and I'm so fortunate that Sika brought me along to say, hey, mm-hmm. Lisa, Sarah, 
let me introduce introduce you to Shauna and then and it continues to snowball and so some of those voices that have been there all along but haven't really been given a platform even to talk about these issues now we can start uh, multiplying if you will and and they've always been there but multiplying mm-hmm. those voices in ways that now they're decision makers now they're yep. on um, ambassador teams now they're they're being it's it's the representative piece of that but it's also the voice piece of it Mm -hmm. and so um we call it lisa um in the allyship scholarship amplification so how can lisa as a white person um highlight these other women of color that may have been unknowns in the sport and now they have a national and an international platform because you lisa sarah said hey these are folks i'm aware of they're doing great work in the sport and they haven't been in it for the the (laughs) the fame (laughs) at all uh they've been doing it They've been doing it because they love the sport, Um, but let's highlight them now because we have enough of this group. We have enough whiteness. We have enough maleness. We have enough whatever. Um, Now let's highlight these other folks. How can we continue to amplify voices that haven't always been the loudest in ways that keep that momentum Mm -hmm. going around the social justice movements that we have? Yeah. And so keeping that momentum going, I think, is calling on white people, men, um, able-bodied folks especially, to do more than just kind of position this activism work as a hobby, right? Now, I know, Shauna, I think you have um, kind of a concept that would be helpful maybe for our listeners to think about this as we move past this November 3rd election and into the future, you know, no matter who is in uh, power, who wins, we have to have a continued and a sustained effort, particularly folks with identity privilege. We can't just let it go. And I think this hobby piece is a really interesting concept. Yeah, well, you know, I, uh, you know how it goes, Lisa, when we're in a university setting, we're around really brilliant people. Um, And uh, one of them (laughs) that I talked with just this morning in a meeting um, is actually one of my graduate assistants. And she talked about this concept of activist hobbyism. And that sounds like a big, huge word, but basically it means that there are individuals that might take activism um, as just a hobby, just something they do on the side. It's something that they just might spend a little bit of spare time doing, but it's not really woven into the fabric of their lives. It's not part of their everyday lens and the way they move in the world. It's just, oh, I'm going to do this because I have a little bit of time. Let me do this really quickly. And then I'll go back to my regular life, my regular privileged, advantaged life. And I love that concept that she brought up because when I thought about it, I was like, Oh, you're right. Let me think about that. A hobby is something that you do in your spare time. It's not something that you do all the time. And I think that's what she was trying to get at was that, you know, we don't want people in places of privilege. I'm going to pick on myself for a moment. I don't want to be that person who is an able-bodied person that only picks up ableism and concepts around ableism, neurodiversity, all those things. I don't want to just pick those up when it's convenient. I want to do it as often as possible. And it's woven into my awareness constantly, every single day, regardless of my own personal abilities. And I I just don't want us to get to this place where um, best case scenario, it's this activist hobbyism where it's just a hobby, but worst case scenario, then you get into toxic allyship where you're, you're performative, you're performing it um, for the attention and not for the actual good that it does. And so, you know, I think it's something that we really need to consider to make sure that even whether it's um, race directors, whether it's um, race organizations, whether it's tri clubs, et cetera, that 
oh, the little DNI committee is just the activist hobby. It's just a little add on. Mm -hmm. No, it's something that we're aware of all the time. And so, you know, how do you continue to weave it in to bring it to the forefront of your mind, not as an add on? Because the people, whether you feel this or not, because you may not in a privileged role, if you continue to make diversity and inclusion a afterthought, a side gig, a side hobby, the people that you're trying to engage and affect will feel that they are a side gig, mm -hmm. a hobby, not part of the fabric of the sport. And so they feel as if they're an add on and we would be foolish to think that they would not pick up on that. So, you know, I, I think it's a concept. I'm still fleshing it out. I'm, I'm building it as a fly, Lisa, the same way you did. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of figure it out. But I think it's something to consider in endurance sports. How do we not make this an add on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think something that might help folks um, kind of create this sustained effort is, uh, you know, I was I'm listening to um, a book now called So You Want to Talk About Race, and it's by Ijeoma Oluo. And I, I'm not 100 percent sure I'm getting her last name correct there. But um, she made this comment that seems so simple, but it really resonated with me that um, a privilege is not a privilege unless there is kind of the equal and opposite disadvantage, right? So for every privilege that we experience so that I experience through my whiteness, I experience as a privilege because there is a disadvantage associated with that for folks of color, right? Like if, if there wasn't that kind of opposite, and opposite might not be the right word, but I, I, opposite disadvantage, then my whiteness would not be a privilege, right? So my benefit and my advantage that I'm experiencing in life through able-bodiedness, through whiteness, through education level, nationality, et cetera, I'm experiencing um, at the cost of someone else's disadvantage, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. And yes, maybe that's yes. maybe that's a bit simplistic, but I think that that's helpful for people, for white people, especially to always think about the benefits that you have in life because someone else doesn't have those benefits, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, um, I, yeah, I love that coin model that she uses. And, you know, I think that's important for us to think about that. Um, it, it, and let me just give a caveat, a little bit of a caveat to that. It, it's not an all or nothing thing either. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so if, so Lisa, if you have a full buffet on your table <laughs> and I don't have a crumb on mine, right. Well, you giving up a plate of that full buffet doesn't mean that you walk away hungry. That means that we both walk away satisfied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that's the nuance is that um, if you're not really, you know, moving through this understanding of privilege or advantage, then it's the assumption that it's all or nothing. That if I give you a crumb, yes. that I, I'm not giving you up. A, I'm not giving you just a crumb. I'm giving you everything. You get all that I have. And that's not the case. It's um, it, when it comes to especially equity, it's evening out power. It's not taking mm -hmm. all power away. And so, Lisa, if you gave me a plate off of your buffet, we're both walking away satisfied and no one has to walk away hungry. No one has to walk away at a full disadvantage because we've uh, relatively uh, balanced somewhat the power. I don't want to use balance too tightly there, uh, but we've redistributed the power in ways mm -hmm. that's to more folks. And so I, I, that all or nothing thing has got to go. <laughs> and, yes. and I think that's where 
we might have fallen um, along political lines in this country is that there may be some folks who think that they have to give up all they have and whatever they might have earned for someone else to have something when other groups are, of folks are saying, nah, I don't even want all that you have. Frankly, I just want all of us to have something. <laughs> and so I think right. that's, a, that's a big well, difference. I think that's a really great clarification. And also the piece to extend what you're saying is that that buffet that I have, right? Um, <laughs> like, yeah. isn't mine, right? Like, it's not like naturally my buffet, right? Mm. Like I've acquired that level of um, extravagance on my buffet table because of the advantages that um, certain systems in this country have given me. And I think that we get stuck um, white people are special on this, like giving up, right. And that this assumption that what I'm giving up was absolutely mine to begin with. Um, and I earned it hundred percent based uh, on my hard work. And that's, that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Um, I always go back to this example because I think it's so illustrative of what we're talking about here. And it's the 50 women to Kona, um, push that's happened over several years that many men were resistant of this movement because they felt like to give women equal slots, to bring them up from 35 to 50 would mean that they would lose something. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's, that's how power is working to maintain the status quo. You're not losing anything by giving women 50 slots, right? We're leveling the playing field, like to frame it as a loss for you is such an interesting psychological dynamic. Um, you know, we're not taking 15 slots from you and giving women 50 and you're ending up with 35. We're just saying 50, 50, Mm -hmm. right. Which you know, so I just think that's such a great, that's such a great example. Um, mm-hmm. A real time triathlon current, still not resolved example of this. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like um, a, a parallel challenge to the electoral college we were talking about earlier, right? It's like, we're, we're trying to even things out. And there are people that are resistant because it doesn't benefit them to even things out. It just doesn't. It, and it doesn't right. take away from them either, but it certainly doesn't benefit them. Um, and so I think that's an important point to think through is, you know, uh, and and to your point about the men's react reaction to that is it does feel kind of wonky when things have changed in ways that you feel are taking from you because you've had forever. So if you've been, a, so for example, If I lived in a 20 room mansion for my entire life, me living in a five room mansion may feel like it's a loss when I wasn't Mm -hmm. living in all those damn rooms anyway. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even using them. Mm -hmm. So and and I think that's kind of where, you know, unearned advantage kind of plays a role there where it's I have to adjust my mindset to not have certain things that may not have been used fully anyway, or even if they were fully used wrapping your brain around the fact that there's been folks that have never been used to having any of that. Like, I I wish there was, um, you know, how um, on some campuses and even in some colleges uh, or other industries where they have kind of a a flip day where it's almost like cross training, where if you're the CEO, you might function as the executive assistant for a full work day. And you have to do that job for a full work day to figure that out. Mm. Right. And I think I, I wish there was a way where people, all of us, including myself, have an advantage, unearned advantage in one identity had to flip into another identity just for a while to experience it. And there, there's been some authors and journalists who have done this when it comes to the living poor and other things. Um, but what would it look like to flip that so that you can really understand what it means 
to function in a society where you no longer have that privilege. And it's a foregone conclusion that you don't have those, the, the access to those things. Would you have compassion around that? And, and how can we cultivate that compassion? There are some people that have turned a corner. This kind of goes back to our red pill, blue pill uh, episode, um, where there has been this awakening of, oh my goodness, I had no clue that certain disadvantages have been going on all along. How can we sustain past the election this awareness and top of mind feeling with all of that? I, I, mm-hmm. I just think it's something to consider. How do we keep this top of mind for as long as humanly possible without there needing to be a critical incident to bring it to our mind? Yes, yes. And that's how we can carry this way forward is to really do the work to keep it at top of mind. And I think it is work, right? Because if you've gone from never thinking about it to endeavoring to think about it every day, that is going to take some emotional labor. And so, you know, I think one one last thing I'd, I'd love to touch on, Shauna, as we think about the election today, as we think about this year and the stress that it has created and how we can kind of maintain the energy to push these issues to the forefront in an ongoing way is, you know, our emotional, mental and physical health. Um, you know, how are we engaging each of us in self-care uh, that will give us the life to continue this journey. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that's a, a big piece of the puzzle too, is that um, I had a really good friend of mine at the beginning of this year that said, you know, Shauna, I know you already do your triathlon thing. Keep doing what you do. You know, he's a cyclist. Um, and he said, I want you to be radical about your self-care this year. And he's also in higher ed. And so, you know, understands the challenges of election years in higher ed and students have been you know, the motivation behind lots of social unrest in this country. Um, and he's also a professor and said to me, you have to be radical about your self-care. Now, this was pre-pandemic, <laughs> pre-George Floyd, pre-Brianna, pre-all of that. And I held on to that because, you know, yeah, you, you know, you watch the ongoing incessant news all day about everything politics yeah, I, even if I, it's not on the plan, I still need to go for that run in the morning or, you know, I need to go for that swim just to calm me down or whatever may be going on because real life was still going on regardless of the pandemic. Um, and so given that, I think endurance sport can be used as a uh, a, a healing balm, if you will, something that helps us, even if it's just within our own selves, um, because, you know, the people around me, they know. Did, did, no, you didn't work out today because you're a little bit on edge. Like your 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 email responses were really curt. I know you didn't have that that run this morning. And and I think it's true. And I think it's uh, even more so this year, given how we've all been in this pressure cooker where it's been really tough for all of us from various angles. Um, and so I've held on to it. I see other people holding on to it. You know, the folks that they uh, their races were canceled, but they kept on training because it helped them to keep their emotional, psychological, physical health stable. All of that, I think, um, is something that we can carry forward and uh, continue beyond the election, because as the country changes, transitions, heals, whatever may occur beyond the election results being announced, we still need to stay as stable as possible. And I, and I do it in this way, and I hope uh, folks that are mm-hmm. listening do it in this way as well. Yeah, and then and not using um, endurance sport um, as a means to justify uh, or 
sorry, I'll reframe that. Not using endurance sport as your self-care technique and then as a means to justify why we shouldn't talk about these issues in endurance sport, right? Like I think that endurance sport is a tool of self-care and mental health and physical health. And we also perhaps have a habit of saying, because it's this tool of self-care, mental health and physical health, I don't want politics. I don't want the cultural landscape to seep into my endurance sport bubble. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, I think that we need to kind of provide that caution or that warning that it's a both end. It's not exempt. It's (laughs) the sport is not exempt at all. Um, And so, but, and that's what I appreciate too, because, you know, going back to my whole, you know, rules of engagement and, you know, how I choose to expend my energy, there may, there may be some times where, yeah, I realize that the group run is going on, but I'm processing some stuff. So I may want to do a run on my own or with just one good friend or, you know, whatever it may be. Or I might want to go on my bike ride with my fun friend, not my fast friend, because that's not the goal for tomorrow. Tomorrow mm-hmm. is to laugh and have a good time and get some wind in your face, not to see how fast we can go. You know, making some of those energy decisions, too, about how we use endurance sport uh, to keep us relatively stable here. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. those are conscious decisions I think we need to make. Yeah, for sure. So, well, um, today, big day. Um, I would say to our listeners who are listening on Tuesday, November 3rd, that uh, hang in there. Um, (laughs) Do what you need to do today to take care of yourself and in the coming days um, once we figure out how this election is going to end. And um, don't give up. Uh, keep yeah. pushing forward and keep this front of mind. But Shauna and I are with you. We have definitely have uh, nerves in our stomach and we'll likely be texting back and forth <laughs> all as day. things unfold. Yes. All day, all day, all day. Well, you know, it's, um, I would say I'm going to start with a, um, a very lovely wine stash uh, probably on Monday hopefully to get me through the remainder of the week as we wait on <laughs> results. Uh, but we're certainly in the trenches with all of you as we wait and, um, and have hope, hopefully. So um, I think it's important for us to continue to have hope regardless of what the outcome might be. Mm-hmm. Great way to end. All right, folks, we'll see you next time. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.